श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय सिमाद भगवत गीता की जय गुड इवनिंग एवरीवन I want to welcome everybody to Pure Yoga, to um, hear um, um, His Holiness Swami Bhaktivedanta Tripurari Maharaj, um, who comes here for the first time in almost 30 years. Um, he will be speaking about um, and lecturing on the fourth edition of his Bhagavad Gita, um, that is Bhagavad Gita Healing and Philosophy. It was dubbed the Gita of the Year in 2001 by the Yoga Journal, and it is now its fourth printing, which is coming out next week. We'll be selling the copies of the back that you can get signed, and some of his other amazing books, because he's an author, a poet, um, as well as a spiritual teacher. Um, as well as that, he presently has an established two rules sufficient monastic communities in the Americas, Adari, a monastery in Northern California, and Madhavan in Costa Rica. Both communities also serve as retreat centers for spiritual seekers um, around the world. So I offer my obeisances to my Guru Maharaj. So as Kanupai has mentioned, I've, I've been here before. It's been a while. Uh, and... Um, I appreciate those who have invited me and and uh, hosting me and the opportunity to uh, address you this evening. And um, as was mentioned, my uh, coming here just happened to coincide with the fourth printing of my edition, Commentary and Translation of Bhagavad Gita, famous text, uh, one of perhaps the two most uh, influential and important texts from among the sacred books of the East that deal with yoga, pure yoga. It's purely about yoga, Bhagavad Gita. The other, of course, the Yoga Sutras, which some of you may as well be familiar with. And um, I wanted to speak a little bit about the uh, what led to the this particular edition of the Gita. It uh, dates back to a a conversation that I had with my my guru. In fact, the first words that he personally spoke to me, which are of course memorable and uh, said to contain all meaning and all one needs to know to perfect one's life if one could but pay attention. I'm still trying to pay attention to those words. And they uh, came to me in a park in, in, um, from him in, in Los Angeles. He used to like to walk in the mornings. And um, he graced some of the parks here in New York. In fact, his outreach to the Western world really touched down here in New York City. I don't know, maybe 1965. And and in a park, for that matter, underneath a tree. It's now become a famous tree in Tompkins Square Park. There's a plaque there commemorating his sitting beneath the tree with a couple of, well, a pair of hand symbols like this and chanting the Hare Krishna mantra. So 
in another park on the other side of the country, on the West Coast, in Los Angeles, we, myself and uh, other students of his, were walking, and it was the first time I was uh, invited to walk along and personally with him, and towards the end of the, uh, the stroll, one friend of mine mentioned my I guess my my penchant for uh, sharing the teachings that I had imbibed and the extent to which others found that uh, compelling. He wanted to point out my, um, I guess the extent to which I had taken the subject matter seriously. And so Prabhupada, my Guru Marshi, he turned to me and he quoted some verses from the Bhagavad Gita. Hmm. Sometime later, oh, maybe about, I don't know, 30 years or so, I thought about that again. And what was it that he said to me? And it happened to be recorded, so I was able to and transcribe and look it up and find it. And, and I had a preoccupation with another sacred text, which is really the sequel to the Gita, the Bhagavat, Sriman Bhagavatam, Bhagavat Purana, a much larger text of about 18,000 verses in Sanskrit poetry, some prose also. The Gita is much smaller, by comparison only 700 verses. In the one, really, the Gita leads to the, to the Bhagavat. One, the Gita seeks to uh, address our intelligence in a way that would lead us then into the life, if you will, the heart of the Absolute that is portrayed very beautifully and poetically in the Bhagavad. These are very well um, known and popular texts in the subcontinent of India. And of course they've overflowed here into the West as well. Some of that due to my Gurmarsh's work and uh, his interest in sharing what he had received and so forth. So, uh, when I looked and I remembered he had spoken to me from the Gita and uh, these were the first, as I say, words coming from his mouth, the honey coming from the, the lotus of his mouth, if you will, and to my ear and, and, and heart. It rose up again after 30 years and I thought, I have not paid enough attention to the Bhagavad Gita. I, as I said, I had a penchant for studying the Bhagavad and reciting it, and it was my first uh, love, so to speak. But many people in our sect and other sects as well uh, were fond of saying that the Bhagavad Gita contains everything that you, you need to know. You can find all, all answers there, all truth there. They're kind of devotees of the Gita, per se. And uh, so I thought to see if I could uh, have their experience, if you will, and study the Gita uh, to some extent. And and uh, so as I began, I, I found that um, verse after verse and chapter after chapter, I was astounded at the... And it's not that I hadn't read it. I had read it about it six or eight times by then. Um, but as I read it and studied it carefully and so forth, I was—I uh, I kind of found what, what they 
those devotees of the Gita experienced and uh, had some some uh, identification with their their sense that all answers this book alone kind of idea that sounds a little perhaps ominous this book alone you don't need any other book and so but it's something we have to think about and consider the nature of such a book that would make such a claim or those who would make such a claim about such a book and so to if i may the words that he spoke to me there's three or four of the shlokas or verses from the gita and um, two of them, all of them came at the end of the Gita, the kind of the conclusion of the Gita. Gita means, for those of you who are not familiar, song, and Bhagavad means God. So, song of God, it's the song of God, about God. It's probably best if we were to talk about God uh, to do so in song and in poetry, words, uh, manners of speech that seek to that are, I'd like to think of like participatory languages that seek to help us participate in the more of life that uh, we sense uh, is that doesn't quite, as they say, meet the eye. Hmm? Math, by contrast, is a descriptive language, no doubt, but it, it lends itself very much to, to controlling. Hmm? And uh, the yogic tradition, of course, wants to tell us to let go and that it's difficult, if not impossible, to control the world and certainly it's not easy or possible to control love, which is what makes the world go round. So we should try to participate in the essence of being. Oh, giving hmm, is has much to do with with love and by giving we magically grow in a sense. We cannot hold up what we've gotten after giving to show it to others, but we ourselves are the proof that there's more to giving than to taking. We become compelling ourselves and more interesting ourselves. We become, we become bigger in... Um, in the eyes of others, and we feel that we've grown. The self, I would say, contracts uh, by taking, and it expands by giving. So yoga is much about that, much about um, uh, giving, about loving, and again, as I say, as I entered into that side point, uh, love is not something that we can control. It tends to control us in a way that's comforting. We would not like to be controlled, perhaps, but uh, love is kind of uh, masters us in a way that is as disconcerting as it is comforting. We we tend to move in the world in search of love, and we cannot rest until we find it. And when we find it, to whatever extent, we start to move again. It has an orbit, so to speak, of its own, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it uh, it is somewhat disconcerting. She loves me. She loves me not. It's full of ups and downs. It's a roller coaster, however, that we we don't want to get off of. We might want to get off of it. We might reason and reason well hmm? that feelings, however comforting they may be, that are derived from things that don't endure, 
are a recipe for disappointment in as much as we might sense that we ourselves are enduring um, our enduring period, whatever we are, we are we have a sense, we may have a sense that we are enduring indeed yoga is about finding out in the very basic, very minimum very minimum sense, the extent to which we endure, the extent to which we exist, which ends all fear. Loving is something more than that, but if we are to love and love in an enduring way, we have to endure, and that which we repose our love in has to be enduring as well. So we may reason, and as I say, and reason well, that if our feeling, our love, if you will, it's a feeling, hmm, is derived from things that don't endure, then if we are in pursuit of enduring love, this is a problem. Hmm? So, because all things, if you will, are here today and gone tomorrow, and things are not the best things in life, we are, if you will, the experiencer is infinitely more valuable than that which is experienced. Hmm? Subjective, I mean to say. Hmm? Gives meaning to the objective world. See how things can get out of out of balance with a with a with a misapplication of uh, of reasoning. Mm. So we should go into that, and the Gita does in some depth mm. the nature of the subjective, the nature of consciousness. But I, what I want to say here, in making this point, is that we should not give up the pursuit of love, having understood, having come to the wisdom as to the the temporary nature of things. Hmm? In other words, we repose our love in things, and I mean by that also things that are animated hmm, by consciousness. Other people, for example, our friends, our family members, we should love them and love them completely as far as it is possible to love them. To love them fully, then, will involve not trying to control them, right? But letting them be what they are and trying to hopefully exemplify all that they can be. And they are and can be more than things. Hmm? And things are here today and gone tomorrow. So they are enduring as we are enduring. And... um, and we should love them in that context, with that sensibility in mind. Hmm? So, the pursuit of love is noble, and it, 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 we will not be disappointed if we look in the right place. And the right place to begin to look, then, is within ourself. Not in terms of our being a thing, in one sense, which we are. Objectively speaking, we have a psychic and physical dimension that can be harnessed and controlled to one extent or another, but our subjective reality, ourselves as an experiencer, this is very un, like uncharted uh, waters. Um, and these are the waters that the Gita seeks to chart for us. Hmm? It seeks to give us a methodology by which we can kind of get a grasp on the subjectivity hmm? of life, the, the, the experiencer, hmm? um, a, a grasp on it, but as I want to say, a grasp on 
something that eludes grasp and and control. So we come within the embrace of love, and uh, at the same time it kind of oozes out beyond our embrace, and um, and we cannot uh, control it. But that's good. That should be comforting. Hmm? Uh, after all, lesser things can be controlled by superior things. And we would do well to be in touch with things greater than ourselves if we are to learn. Hmm? Our tendency may be to gravitate towards or be comfortable in the presence of those who are less complex than ourselves, let us say, and easier to to control, but uh, we may not learn as much from that as being in touch with that which is beyond our grasp but it speaks to the spiritual is of that nature consciousness is of that of that nature hmm? so to the gita then about these kind of things and the words that my guru Maharaj first spoke to me the verses that he cited i'd like to go and pursue some of these thoughts a little bit further here he quoted these verses they are the at the end of the gita hmm. after the conclusion Sri Krishna says something about what might happen to you if you study this book. What might happen to you if you, upon studying it, feel compelled to explain it to others? Hmm? Kind of the fruits, what would be the fruit of this pursuit, the study of the Gita. He says here in two verses, idam, ya idam, paramam, guhyam, madbhakteshu, abhidhashati, Bhaktimai param kritpa mam evaishati asangshayat. Nacha tasman manusyeshu kasjin me priyakritamaha bhavitana cha me tasmad anya priyataro bhuvi. He says, Ya idam paramam guyam. He says, this song that I have sung to you, he's speaking to his friend, the warrior Arjun, it is Parama and Guyam. It is the uh, supreme secret. The Gita has secret, it has a secret wisdom, it has, mm, let's say, confidential wisdom, it has more confidential wisdom. And it has what it describes as the most confidential wisdom as well. Here is referring to really the most confidential wisdom. And it says, Madhbhakteshu. Abhidashati. Abhidashati means in great detail to examine the root meanings of every word and what they could possibly mean, what the implications of them might be, and 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 to do this, and in the context of doing that, explain the supreme secret, uh, the supreme confidential secret of the Gita to, he says, Madhbhakteshu, those who are devoted to me, he says, oh, this is, uh, mm, this is very good. Mahi, bhakti mahi param kritva, mam evai shati asangshaya. He says, such people, 
Asangshai, without any doubt, they'll come to me. Hmm? Krishna, of course, is also uh, addressed in the Gita as Yogeshwara. So, to meet the kind of the master of yoga would be a reasonable uh, objective for those engaged in in yoga. He says, "This possible by this hmm? by explaining the Gita. Oh, from the confidential knowledge of the Gita to those who." have devotion to me in every way. So, this word Abhidhashati it in itself explains to us why there are so many editions of the Bhagavad Gita. Why one at one, why a couple, but so many every year there's an one, a new one, maybe more than one, and so forth. And, and people ask me, why did you write a commentary on Bhagavad Gita? There are so many. This, in a sense, is why. And it is with these words that my Guru Maharaj walking in that park in Los Angeles, Cheviot Hills was the name. He uh, encouraged me to to do this kind of, uh, to engage myself in this way. It implies here that, as I mentioned earlier, or alluded to, that uh, I guess I mentioned it directly, that by giving, sharing, there is something uh, to be gained. Indeed, the giving is, as we know, or we've heard anyway, we may not know it, but the giving is the is the getting. So who who give the Gita to others who share it, hmm? then it's it's uh, it's it's its source, the fountain from which it springs, and thus everything about it will become theirs. And this this is a very interesting theological idea. Hmm? Of course, when we speak of Krishna, this this is the idea of the absolute. I mean. You've seen the pictures, playing the flute and, um, you know, male and, uh, like, seems to like cows for some reason and uh, adorned with the feather of a peacock and and, uh, a lady's man, it would appear, too, with the milkmaidens of the the village and so forth. Uh, It's hard to get, uh, and this is paramam, guyatamam, to come to an understanding of what that's all about, depicted as it is in art and so forth, that's a very uh, confidential kind of idea that's given in the Gita. Hmm? Very deep idea. To get there and really get that and really understand that, we have to begin with the basic confidential knowledge. Hmm? Not paramaguyam, the su- supremely confidential secret uh, wisdom, but just secret wisdom in and of itself. We'll try to go there a little bit, but something should be said about the 101 confidential knowledge, if you will. <laughs> the idea is that there are things, or I should say there is knowledge, that um, can only be gotten in a particular way. We, we're used to acquiring knowledge through our senses. We kind of touch the world, we taste the world, we we hear the world, we, we see the world, and we, impressions uh, gather in the mind and on the strength of well, the mind we reject some uh, experiences, we accept others. Some kalpa bikalpa, we say this is good, that was bad. This is hot, this is cold. Hmm? We get a kind of knowledge, that is to say, through the senses, and that knowledge may be extended by reasoning about our sensual experiences. Through the instruments of the senses, we 
experience to one extent of the world, and then we may reason about it and come to some conclusion as to what is the nature of being. Hmm? There's obviously uh, a problem with this, but um, the problem is that your senses may dictate that it's hot and mine may dictate that it's cold, and your goods may be my bads, my happies may be your sads, so the kind of wisdom, if you will, <laughs> if we can call it that, goes against what we might sense as human beings must be at the heart of reality, a kind of unity. It creates a diversity. For you it's hot, again, and for me it's cold. In this small world of the mind that we live based on these determinations, my hot, my cold, my good, my bad, make up me. My, our my, defines our sense of I. The problem with this, of course, is nothing is ours. Hmm? So this is a very fleeting kind of identity that is arrived at through this very small word, my. We get an apparently very big I, but if we, if we think about it, it's very small, actually. It's as much here today and gone tomorrow as the things that we think are mine. Hmm? Such a two-letter word gets us in such trouble. Hmm? My. The world of the mind is very small. It's very petty. There, it really doesn't comfort even ourselves. But we have the audacity to think that everyone should fit inside of it, that that would be reasonable. Hmm? That... Uh, <laughs> That is uh, the madness of the I derived from, if you will, my. Hmm? Again, two small letters, but a big problem results from that. And it's really a very small, therefore, I say, petty sense of self that comes from this. That we're comforted, I suppose, to some extent, by the illusion that that sense of I is more enduring and bigger than it actually is. Yoga, of course, in a very basic sense, is to come out from under the oppression of the mind and the senses, which we look at as liberators inasmuch as knowledge is said in most universities to set you free. And there's a kind of knowledge that's gathered through the senses, extended with reasoning. Here, from the Gita's perspective, it's considered oppression, it's considered ignorance. Yoga, then, is the methodology given in the Gita, for coming out from that. That means a different kind of knowledge is to be arrived at by a very different method. Hmm? Not by acquiring, hmm? not through the medium of the senses and with the limits of reasoning, but by using the, our sensual instruments and our reasoning faculty, applying them in relation to something else. Hmm? That's something else the Gita is, itself is an example of. We can call it revelation. Hmm? The idea is something that might sound like an old dusty book that you don't want to go near, that's got all the answers for all times. And uh, uh, No, but it's not, there would be a misunderstanding of revelation, and it's a widely spread misunderstanding that gives spirituality a bad name. Hmm? 
Oh, yes, there are books that are said to be books of revealed knowledge, and I don't doubt that they are, and they are full of rules and things that don't apply to the, the times in which we live and seem that if we would apply them, the very essence of what they're about would be contradicted. We would be unkind rather than compassionate by following that particular law. But if we look carefully at the text, especially the Gita, Mahabharata, Krishna himself has said in the Gita that morality is a moving goalpost. Hmm? He said, it's not fixed for all times. There are principles that have to be adjusted according to time and circumstance that constitute what is the best thing that you can do, what is the most ethical and morally sound thing to do, and that should be in consideration of those things, doing those things which will most readily promote the pursuance and the realization of the kind of secret, if you will, wisdom that the Gita is about. After all, morality is only to tame the wild. And before we enter into the, the, the wilderness of love, there's some kind of in-between space where we come to peace. Hmm? Um, again, if, the, if we are under the oppression of the mind and the senses to come out from that, it's certainly a breath of fresh air and a big sigh of relief. Shanti, shanti, shanti. I don't have to go here. I don't have to go there. That's what gets us up from sitting, isn't it? Hmm? We sit, but something else is sitting in our heart. Wants a sense of mine, and we have to get up to meet our my. You see, the I derived from my is a troublesome one. Hmm? It needs things. It needs to keep busy to try to keep itself in existence. Hmm? Its existence seems to be threatened. There's a struggle. Hmm? Darwin said it of the survival of the fittest. The Gita has a similar idea. Hmm? It says, what? That one who is born will die. One who dies will be born. Hmm? In the Bhagavad, the sequel, it extends upon the same idea, a little closer to what Darwin said. It said, jivo jivasya jivanam. One living being is food for another. This is the world of taking. This is the world of the small I derived from our sense of my. It has us on the take. My means needs, wants. Hmm? The sense of I derived from our false sense of proprietorship is something that cannot be maintained. Hmm? Because as time will tell, Nothing belongs to us. Is it unreasonable, then, to posit intelligence to time, to give it intelligence? It can keep everything. With all our intelligence, we cannot keep anything. Hmm? Time, the movements of the, what causes, the, what animates the world, consciousness that animates our microcosm of the world in the form of our psychic and physical dimension that we think of as ourself. Hmm? The macrocosm, is it unreasonable to, to conjecture, and it will be a conjecture, no doubt, that consciousness moves it as well, that there could be a, a sun to the ray that we are constituted of. This is all theoretical, metaphysical 
conjecture. We cannot prove it. We cannot prove what the Gita says to anyone but ourselves. And who else do we have to prove it to? Hmm? Think about it. If you can convince yourself of something, then you don't need everybody else's agreement. We are possessed in our rational, uh, modern world, postmodern world, um, to we are a little addicted to, or we're pressed often to think that that uh, everything should answer to reason. This is a very limited idea. A very um, reason will free us from animality to some extent. That's true. But reason is a very proceed with caution. A reason ruled life is a very kind of proceed with caution existence. Hmm? The homeland of the heart is not a cautious uh, way of living. Hmm? No. When, you're, when, you, when your mother says, eat this, of course it could be different in today's world, but the point is you don't have to read the label. If it's in your own home, you know what's there. It's, uh, if you go to another country like New York, and you, you have to read the label, what's in the bottle, be careful. And, and so on and so forth. So this is a very proceeding with caution type of reason-ruled existence. It's not the fullness of freedom. It can, it can, it can move us away from, from animality, if you will, the, the, the call of the senses, dragging us to the unreasonable position of, for example, oh, feeling hungry and so then eating. And when the stomach says enough, the tongue says more. Hmm? This is a problematic life, to be ruled by the senses alone. Hmm? Well, we said we were said to be reasonable animals, so this reason becomes prominent in human life. But I want to say that there's something more prominent in human life than the capacity to reason. We have the capacity to reason as to the limitations of reason and the unreasonableness that all things must be reasonable. Love itself knows no reason. And again, it's love that we are after. Hmm? Not knowing. We're after the kind of knowing that is found in love, that love is pregnant with, essential wisdom that we'll give birth to. When you know, when you love, you know what to do. Hmm? And you know how to break the laws also, which are meant to be broken. There may be rules in the religious texts and so forth. They have their place. And they may be adjusted according to time and place. Hmm? But if we catch the spirit of them, then we transcend them. Hmm? Then there's a possibility of living a wild life, if you will. But a, a, a wisely uh, reasoned kind of wise love, as much as love is, is wild. Wise love. Hmm? So this is all interesting. It may sound compelling, but is it reasonable? Well, we've already said it doesn't have to be, but that may sound unreasonable hmm? to some. Hmm? That may be a problem, but the thing that we are after, ourself, the sense to arrive at, at, a, at a, an understanding of, the, of, the, of what the more is in life that every human being intuitively feels there is. In other words, we shouldn't live our life only on intuition. That could be problematic. If, if we're driving here today, as we were, and Prem says, out of intuition, I think we should turn left here, and we end up in Brooklyn rather than Manhattan. You know, 
well, we might listen to her the next time that she has intuition, and we might not, but if everybody in the car at the same time says, turn right, I have an intuition, <laughs> we might give that more, more credibility. Hmm? Could be wrong, too. We grant that. Hmm? But the entirety of the human society has a sense that there's more to life than what meets the eye. Hmm? There's more. Hmm? There's, there's, a, there's a meaning, there's a purpose to life. There's, and we find, practically, as I mentioned earlier, that if we trace it out, that by giving, there's a getting. Is that reasonable? If you have two and you give one, do you end up with more? You see? By the mathematical explanation, we end up with less. Hmm? But the reality is, we end up with more. We end up, the more is ourselves. We start to find ourselves a capacity of giving, a unit of, of, of a, with a capacity of a, of a tendency to give, to love. Hmm? We start to come into contact with the nature of our ourself, unfettered by the mind and senses which drag us to this life of taking. Hmm? The body needs. I've identified with it. I have needs. Hmm? I have to take. I have to get up. I cannot sit. Hmm? Hmm? Revelation. A way of knowing. No, it's not a dusty old uh, book uh, that's irrelevant. Revelation of the Gita is an example of that. It's called sometimes Gita Upanishad. Gita Upanishad, to, to identify it with the Upanishads, the oldest form of revelation known to human society before the great Western revelation as it's thought of as of the Christ and so forth. These Upanishads spoke about things that later came to be thought about in Europe by persons like, for example, Descartes with his oh, category dualism, there is, there is mind, there is matter. This is his kind of idea. Uh, the, these kind of things were thought about a long time ago. They are in the East. I don't mean East is better than West. I'm just stating some history hmm, of how things happened on Earth, which is has an East, it has a West, it has a North and a South, and for all of us. So, yes. Hmm. Category dualism, a problem for modern science and philosophy of mind, not a very popular idea. It's the idea of the Gita hmm? and many sacred texts, that there's an experiencer and there's the experienced. Hmm? And the two are categorically different. The one, the experienced, is dependent upon the experiencer. Hmm? Revelation speaks about these kinds of things. And this is kind of the beginning of the secret uh, wisdom, if you will, that I, I spoke of, that there's a difference between ourself and matter, that the experience of what would, would matter matter, independent of consciousness. Who would know about it if it did? Who would care? Consciousness is the knower, the carer, hmm? the experiencer. Now, where did it come from? What is it? So the Gita has a different idea from what's popular in, in uh, philosophy of mind, in uh, uh, maybe uh, neuroscience. It has a different idea than what's popular. There are unpopular, scientifically credible, empirically credible 
theories about the nature of consciousness that lend support to what these ancient texts have said. They're as good as many of, or any of the dozen or so other theories that seek to tell us that your idea that there's more to life than what meets the eye is an illusion. Indeed, the idea, the sense, the collective intuitive sense of human society that, that, that things are caused from up to down, that consciousness is causal, primal. And we, we kind of feel like, I feel something and then I'll, you know, I'll do it. I get a thought, I think about it, and then from there it proceeds downward and the act is carried out. This is our kind of everyday experience. We're told by the majority of the theories out there that that's an illusion, the grand one, the grand illusion. And there is no meaning to life, there's absolutely no purpose to life whatsoever. And this is the kind of the no purpose purpose that they're driven to, to demonstrate, hmm? driven very strongly to demonstrate and validate and conclusively prove once and for all again. All of us, theists and atheists and agnostic, are driven to find meaning. We are driven, the Gita says, to find ourselves. We are a unit of meaning, enduring meaning with a purpose. A no-purpose purpose. It's kind of an interesting idea. In other words, love has no purpose. Hmm? But it's very purposeful at the same time. Hmm? Love moves not out of a purpose, a necessity, out of a need, but out of a different kind of necessity, a necessity to express itself, to celebrate itself. This kind of necessity. Hmm? In the Gita language, we call this kind of life lila as compared to karma, the necessity to, to, to move because we've taken and now we owe. We owe, we owe, and off to work we go. I did a bumper sticker like that. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. How deeply we owe, we don't know. What is the karmic debt from the Gita's point of view? Oh, it's vast, hmm? beyond comprehension. Hmm? Oh, we've maxed out, so to speak, like if you in the credit language, if you max out your credit card, then your paycheck just goes to pay the pay the pay the credit card. You have nothing no fun money left. There's no fun money left. This is a difficult situation. So uh, the karmic debt can be compared to something like that. We've maxed out. We are simply working to pay debt that we've in- incurred. Hmm? We're losing, in this context, the very thing that human life is about, the freedom that it gives us, freedom to reason and more. As I said, there's more to re- than reason. The freedom to do something, well, to give, which might not be, well, which is to do something voluntarily, I want to say, to love. In other words, we're, humans are different than less complex of life, forms of life, in that in human life we, we find consciousness has the opportunity not only to reason about itself and the extent to which it exists, but to to do to to, to do things, to choose, to 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 to, um, to love. I mean, if you call your if you have some pets and you call, let's say, a couple of dogs in the house, you call them to eat dinner, you know, and they both come in and then, and then they don't say, "Excuse me, you first. No, you never find a 
You see, we have the chance to do something voluntarily. We find it in primates to some extent as well, but in human society, really is what it's all about. We can do something voluntarily. You know what that means? To me, it means this. Consciousness is coming out from underneath the oppression of the mind and the senses. It's coming out in human life. It's a suitable vehicle for finding itself. Hmm? Reason develops to the point that we can think about, talk about these things. Reason about the limits of reason. Hmm? Become uh, systematically, methodologically, start to become givers. Hmm? This is an extraordinary time, human life. Oh, and it, we, we are living in human time. Nature has woken up to the fact that it has a soul that can think about itself. This is extraordinary. We're living, this is rare, human life, rare opportunity. So many other forms of life, we find consciousness there, unlike Descartes, the Shankars and Ramanujas and those who are reasoning about the theologizing, they say, about revelation of the East, about the Upanishads, concluded there's more likeness to the less complex species and ourselves, and there is difference. Yes, they're different, as Descartes said, but they're different not categorically. Hmm? They're, they feel. They may not feel as much as we do. Hmm? They we can find, and they reason to some extent, for example, primates, but not to, or dogs, and, and cows too. Uh, maybe not to the extent that we do. You might think, that's good, they're lucky. Hmm? That's also there. We do have to get beyond the burden of reasoning in order to love fully. But we we're burdened by it, so we have to use it also. Descartes thought, well, there's a, there's a difference between humans and all of the all the rest of nature and all other forms of life. We think about ourselves; they don't. So we're important; they're not. Man, woman. We should use the world for our human purposes, and this will please God, who we're the children of. I realize I'm simplifying that, and there are many other insightful things that he uh, contributed to the world of thought. But in the East, with regard to this particular issue, they reasoned, and well, I think that consciousness is found throughout the world. It is life, and we find it in different shapes and forms different shapes and forms, and in a human form, it's kind of on probation. Consciousness is let out of jail, so to speak. Let's see what it will do with itself. Hmm? What, 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 every, every species of life has issues. They all... <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> it's the first time I ever said that. But they do. Their issues, of course, some of the less complex forms of life are different than ours. Their issues are basically what to eat, how to eat. They need to, they need to eat, I should say. These are the issues. They need to eat, they need to sleep, they need to mate, they need to protect themselves. And we find that nature has equipped them to do so, to an extent, right? Every species knows what to eat, pretty much where to find it, too. Eating problem is solved by nature. This is a, this is a material problem, a problem relative to that aspect of ourself that is entirely one with nature, the matter aspect. Hmm? 
So the body needs to eat, so the, the deers know where to eat, what to eat. They need to mate, and they know how to do that, too. When to do it, and with whom, and so on. It's pretty well worked out. And to sleep, they know how much to sleep, where to sleep. And every species has some system built in to protect itself, as far as we can protect ourselves. Again, that existence cannot be protected forever, but to some extent. So we have these needs too. We have the need to eat, sleep, mate, defend, but we're very confused about how to do them. You can go in the drugstore and find one pill for sleeping and you know many other pills also for staying awake. How to do it, how to do it right. You know, I was just in a, in a shopping mall the other day for something. With some of my students took me there and they had a mattress shop. You know, that was incredible. $3,000 mattresses and you might need one and I don't, that's all right, you know, but you might not, you know. That, that's all right too. People are different and have different needs uh, and so forth. We need to sleep. It's a really a simple thing, but it seems to be a problem for us. And of course, mating, well, we don't have to, you know, that's a problem. How to do that? It's a huge issue for us. Hmm? And how to protect ourselves. Goodness, we spend a lot on that to the point of threatening our, our relative existence as well. Hmm? We're confused on these issues. And the reason, from the Gita's perspective, that we are confused about these things that the less complex forms of life have no confusion about is that we as human beings have another question. We have another issue, a bigger issue. We have an issue, and the issue is why. The issue for the animals, for example, is how. Our issue is why. Human life is in itself an existential crisis. It is consciousness coming out from within the fold of matter to the extent that it starts to experience itself. I exist. Why? What? So this is a subjective question. This is a question about the subjective element of our being, not about the material element, the objective, the objective element, the thing part of us, if you will. Hmm? That has questions too. Nature can answer them, but if we don't, as human beings, address the question the subje- about our subjectivity, about our, what what I, I'm experiencing, that I'm experiencing. What does that what does that mean? This is a huge question mark. If we don't answer that, then we live a human life only to answer the other questions because we are ignoring the question that is primal to human society. We get confused about how to answer the other questions. I'm telling you, my humble advice, answer this one question definitively in the Gita and yoga. Seeks to aid us in this. And all these other questions will be answered. How to eat, how to sleep, how to mate, how to defend. Very easy. These are easy, easy, easy questions. No time needs to be spent on them. No time. About some of the saints in our tradition, it said they forgot to eat. They forgot to sleep. What kind of life? What were they living? Not only they pursued the question, they answered it. Hmm? Answering this question, so also all the material problems, not only for you, but it will overflow and answer the question for others. If you can exemplify that, we cannot demonstrate in the laboratory that what you experience and the metaphysical truths that you 
attached to that hmm? when you do yoga in a real sense, in samadhi. Hmm? Hmm? We cannot demonstrate what we, what we say we are ex- subjectively experiencing. Uh, ob- objectively, we cannot demonstrate it hmm? to a third party, if you will. Hmm? Of course, the theory is that it eludes that uh, in, in the first place. But as I said, it can satisfy you. And anyway, why, why shall we be overburdened by the necessity to prove everything we do objectively to the satisfaction of reason hmm? before we do it? Hmm? Why shall we be burdened by that? Huh? Subjective experience is the basis of our whole life. In other words, you cannot prove that you exist in the first place. You cannot prove that you exist. But because you sent, we sense that we exist, we get up every morning and we do the things that we do. We live our whole life based on a subjective experience that we exist. We cannot demonstrate it conclusively. So how important is subjective experience then, which is sometimes dismissed, well, it's a religious experience, no, we can't verify it, so how much are we going to you know, validate it, how much credibility are we going to give to it? And granted, well, people will say, I had a experience, religious experience, I had a religious experience, therefore I started this war, and you know, so, okay, then that's true. <laughs> but... This is the Gita speaking about something else here. It's not talking about starting a war except for killing the ego, hmm? for killing the sense of my. Hmm? It's open season on that. The Gita takes place in a battlefield. It's a metaphor for killing this, this, this false sense of self, for slaying the my that, that gives rise to the small I, to, let, to freeing us from the oppression of the mind where we can find I'm small, but it's okay because the one that is big is affectionate. Hmm? This is a special kind of knowledge. We're talking about only the basic confidential knowledge, knowledge of the self, the difference between consciousness and matter. Hmm? Just basic, difference, basic uh, confidential knowledge. Oh, we can go from there, but before we do, those who like to make consciousness into matter, who, would, who, who are for good reasons, are pushed to think consciousness must be matter. Brain, mind must be reduced to brain. There's nothing else out there. There are certain forces that make the world go round. We know about them, and when we know about them and we experiment accordingly, we get certain results, these good results, we, we get good results, we give people more things, they're happier, we take science, which is objective, and uh, says nothing, but here are the facts, and you do what you want with them, put them in the hands of technology, and people who are, rather than possessed with answering the why question, hmm, with the how questions, and we have then, we're using scientific information to create more things, and promote more wants and so forth. This is this is uh, problematic. But, hmm? So, Richard Dawkins, for example, was all, uh, interviewed recently on on CNN. I happen to see it online, 
And he was asked, what is the last hurdle? You're all familiar with him. A well-known author, very bright person and, and very purpose-driven person who would like us to conclude that there's really no, no purpose to life, no meaning to life. He uh, was asked, what is the last horizon, the last hurdle to get over once and for all, which, by which, in your estimation, it's done, we're finished. Spirituality, yoga, that's right. It's not just religion. It's not just Islamic fundamentalism, Christian fundamentalism, Hindu fundamentalism. It's, it's the idea that there's more to life than what meets the eye. It's the idea that consciousness is not material, that, that, uh, that meaning, life has meaning. This idea, he would like to retire. Persons of his ilk, they would like to retire this once and for all. You should be aware. We should be. You are, I'm sure, you're all thoughtful and educated people. Um, so he said, the last hurdle, consciousness. That's the last hurdle. Once we demonstrate that consciousness is just somewhere in the head, somewhere in the brain, once we can conclusively demonstrate that the lights are on, but nobody's home, <laughs> then we're home. That's his idea. That's not a home. That's not a happy home. But uh, in, from my point of view, from the Gita's point of view, hmm, that's the last hurdle. I would have said, well, you, that's on one end of the spectrum. The other, well, you would also be burdened, I think, to demonstrate that, that, uh, that life where it begins. Hmm? That's a big unknown from the uh, empiric scientific uh, point of view. That's a big, big... It's, it's unknown, the origins of life, as unknown as what it might be seen as the, the pinnacle of the evolution of life, consciousness. This, but I, by this I mean self-awareness that we find in human society. Hmm? What we do know, of course, from science, is that somewhere in between that beginning and that end is there's adaptation going on. There's some adapt, adapt, we can call it evolution, adaptation. Life adapts to different circumstances. It thrives in all circumstances, we could say. Hmm? It's driven to, 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 to exist, and it's capable of changing. Hmm? Spinoza said, long before Darwin, Hindus were evolutionists. A nuanced understanding of it, no doubt, wherein consciousness was primary. And matter is secondary. Matter has meaning as much as consciousness lends itself to matter. Hmm? Why do things matter to us? Why does your car matter to you? And my car doesn't. Because it's your car. That means because you are in it. In other words, you have identified with it. It's my car. That my car is part of what is me. Hmm? I'm a I'm PC. I'm a PC person, and I drive a Prius, and you know, or you know, it could be the other way around. So, <laughs> because I've gone into the thing. Consciousness has extended itself into the thing. The thing takes on value. What is the real value of the thing? It's us. You understand? Because we've extended ourself into it by the projection of my consciousness. We would say, 
The Gita says it has the capacity to project itself into things, identify with them. What makes it valuable is us. What's important is consciousness, not matter. As soon as you withdraw from that, and don't think of it as mine, and it's no longer part of the I that's constructed on the basis of those false eyes, it doesn't matter to us anymore. The more, really, then, is ourselves. And to get there, to that more, this is what yoga is about. And in my experience, then, and I'll go on from here, but that that this this yoga hmm, is a discipline that is much enhanced by a teacher. I began this by saying, on the basis of something that I heard from my guru, the first thing, I came to write a commentary on the Gita. I came to be engaged as I am and I have been for my whole adult life. Since I was 22 years old, I'm 62 this year. Uh, in this kind of activity. So there are people in all of our lives who have taught us something that, of value, hmm, truth. We should, be, we should listen and look for teachers as much as possible, as I said, to keep the company of those who are more aware, more knowledgeable than us. That's good for us. We have the potential to grow there. Hmm? How much do we want to grow? Do we want to stop growing? We should keep good company. And there are people who have helped us, even if later on they taught us by bad example what not to do. Hmm? should try to develop this, this kind of a, a sense of uh, gratitude. And, uh, you know, we're mostly Americans, Western people anyway, Western mindset, all of us here, I suppose, to one extent or another, and it's a rugged kind of individualistic approach. Uh, um, approach to life, I'm, I'm recommending that we are individuals, yes, but the full sense of that will be realized by, by gratitude, by, by grace, revelation is a form of grace. Let me sing, let us sing something in praise of the principle of guru, teacher, whoever you think for a man, whoever has taught you something really meaningful, helped you in your life, that it's to take a moment to think, to express some, some gratitude. Hmm? It's an old song from about 17th century. And um, I know most of you don't know the words, but I asked you to try to enter into it with some feeling. I was recalling the other day how when we were young, living in the ashram, we used to gather around the the, um, seat of our guru in the morning, and uh, we would sing this song twice in the morning, once at about four in the morning, and um, then later on at about uh, about 
maybe six in the morning. We would gather around, sit down around his seat, and he wouldn't be there, but he, he was upstairs, and we would sing this song. And um, the last line, again, of the chorus, of Bande Guru Sri Charanaravan, I offer my, my deepest heartfelt uh, respect, appreciation to the, to, the, to the lotus feet of my guru. Feet and lotus are an interesting idea because feet are thought to be like the lower part of the body, especially when you walk barefoot, as people used to do in olden times. They got pretty dirty and callous and so forth. So to compare them to a lotus, which is the symbol of beauty, and so it seems a little inappropriate. But the idea is that such persons who don't take but only give and live to give in the Gita's language, they are in the world but not of it and compared to a lotus that grows out of the mud, if you will, underneath the water and lies above the water at the same time. So they walk in the world, if you will, without taking, only giving. Hmm? Anyway, we were singing it, it's Vande Guru Shri Charanada Brindam. We were singing Vande Gora, Gora Shri Gora. Anyway, it means cow, we were saying, and we pronounced it wrong. So he chuckled, gave us the idea that I think you meant this, I could feel it that you meant this, but you were saying that. So put our heart in the right place, that's most important. Krishna has a name, instead of saying about Krishna, Baba Grahi Janardana. Hmm? Let us talk for a minute about Krishna, because we've talked a little bit about the self. That secret knowledge, confidential wisdom. Sages have experienced, they've talked about it. This is what comes down in the form of revelation. They've given, as we find here in the Gita, a methodology for experiencing what they've talked about. The theory is, again, briefly, consciousness is independent of matter. The system of yoga is to systematically isolate consciousness from matter. We turn our senses rather than outward towards things, that same energy we turn inward. Hmm? We are isolating our self, seeking to validate the theory that the self can live independently of matter, of things, and of thought. So yoga is much about stopping from taking things and acquiring, more about letting go of things, hmm? and we find we can live without them. It's also not about thinking, certainly not thinking about things, but thinking about perhaps stopping from thinking. Hmm? What, wouldn't that be nice? Hmm? Wouldn't that be peaceful? Hmm? So the idea is self-consciousness can exist independently of the psychic and physical dimensions of our lives. Hmm? That's, as I say, that's extraordinary idea. And, and as you experience it in yoga, the things that you need become less and, and the thoughts that you have become really more by, you know, let's use a Zen terminology, less is more. So, and people think, how can you live like that? Hmm? You don't eat fast food or whatever it might be. How can you live like that? Hmm? Or you don't eat whatever. I mean, a friend of mine, he went home to visit his, his father, and his father said to him, you know, make yourself a sandwich. There's all kinds of food in the refrigerator. So he went there, and he got a 
big piece of bread, and he put cheese and avocados and tomatoes and all kind of nice things. And his father came and said, aren't you going to put anything on it? <laughs> he had a different idea of what it meant to eat, right? Son looked in the refrigerator, didn't see any food, you know, where his father saw food. How can you live without that? This idea. The more, even a sadhaka, a practitioner's life, will look a little bit horrifying to, to people who are possessed of taking and, and overthinking. What to speak of a siddha's life? Maybe you live in a cave with nothing. I mean, people will think, for, to an extent, obviously, as long as you're in the body, it has to be sustained. You have to breathe. There are breatharians, it's said, also. So it's a, yoga is a way of isolating, if you will, the self, consciousness, as the theory goes, from matter and demonstrating that independently of matter, we thrive. Hmm? Interesting to think of it like that. Hmm? But this is just then the beginning. If we can arrive at that understanding, the extent to, if we can realize the extent to which we exist, there's no fear. There's no anxiety anymore. Hmm? There's just a big relief. I exist. This is a moment of being. Hmm? I want to think like this. The Gita teaches that there are three moments of being in the life of the Absolute. Or there's, I should say there's three moments, excuse me, in the life of the Absolute. These moments are being, knowing, and loving. We call them in Sanskrit, and you must be familiar with the terms. Sat, chit, ananda. That's a contemporary interpretation of them. Sat, chit, ananda. The absolute bees, the absolute knows, the absolute loves. Hmm? These are kind of moments. <coughs> if we could isolate them, hmm? it's being, it's knowing, it's loving. Hmm? And we can. There are three distinct paths of spiritual life that, that seek acquaintance with the being of the Absolute, the knowing and the loving. The Gita emphasizes largely the loving. After all, it's Krishna speaking. We're going to talk a little bit about him. Krishna. Remember, he's got the flute. He's got that, that kind of bluish, blackish kind of a shiny black, uh, like, a, like, a, like a blue, dark blue uh, sapphire that illumines, is the idea. Complexion, you've got cows, kind of carefree and so forth. What does it all mean? This is a de- depiction, if you will, of the love aspects of the being, of the, of the, of the, of the life of the Absolute. In Indian aesthetics, for example, Every uh, emotion has a color, and we're not divorced from that here in the West. We have cool colors, we have warm colors, we have all kinds of colors. Hmm? So, uh, corresponding with different feelings. So in India, the, the, in Indian aesthetics, then the color of romantic love, this is called sham. Hmm? Sham. This is the, the color that, that the Absolute has been, uh, his complexion has been depicted. Oh, and a he, problem, 
right? It's a he. I mean, it could be a problem, could not be. But he is this. He he is oh so dependent on she. Love requires two. It requires the two become one, but in a dynamic way. If you and I are in love, then you and I become we. You don't stop from existing. I don't stop from existing. I don't cease to exist. What is important to you becomes important to me. What's important to me becomes important to you. Hmm? This is Radha Krishna. Hmm? This is the idea. Radha Krishna. If, the, if there is a loving aspect to the, to the, to the life of the Absolute, hmm? then there has to be a unity and there has to be a difference, enough difference for there to be no, uh, a, a unity, enough unity, to, uh, a, a difference that beautifies unity. You follow me? Let me give you another example. If you want, if you have a few people playing all different instruments in different directions, it's very disconcerting. So you might say, let's just play one note, Oh, they made this room pretty good, didn't they? <laughs> For that, huh? One note, so that will be some form of harmony, no doubt, some peace, unity. Hmm? But then again, if there were more notes, a number of notes, but they weren't conflicting, but they enhanced one another, so to speak, we call that harmony, hmm? right? That's even more, that's a kind of a complex unity. Hmm? So the metaphysic of the Gita, or the Gita, will lend itself to many ways of thinking, obviously. Hmm? But from the tradition that I come in, it, it, it's apparent, and if you read my edition, it will be apparent that the, it, it speaks the, in this way to me, and it may to you through me as well, or others who have explained it in this way, that the ideal... Hmm? That, that, that if there is a confidential knowledge, and that's the knowledge that I'm different from matter, hmm? that's the beginning of confidential knowledge. What's the more, the, the parma guhyam, the most confidential knowledge? Well, that then, the basic confidential knowledge speaks about our unity. It does away the diversity of your hots and my colds, your happies and sad, my sads, your goods and my bads that get in the way of us coming together. Right? That are all born in the mind, based on information gathered through the senses, impulses in the mind that may, we make these determinations and we get an identity derived from that. We're at odds with others, whether to turn up the heat or turn it down, to end all that fracas and all that's to come to the self. We're all units of self-consciousness. We have so much in common. We can all own together and peacefully. Hmm? We can be, in other words. And we can be in a way that our existence won't be threatened. We can know the extent to which we exist. And that, that is a little knowing in being, and that's the knowing. I know I exist, I know I exist, I exist, I be, I be, I be. I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it, our being, as we know it now, is threatened. It is peaceful to come to that. Those who have, they say, Om Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. It's a big thing. But the Gita says, there's more from that. There's more to do. You know, if you were being chased down the street by a bunch of people, a lynch mob, for example, I've had the experience, almost, 
then if you could like get to the end of the street and there, there you found a door and you went inside and you were close it and lock it and oh, you could be at ease. They would pound the doors, they would go away. There you would be at ease until, you know, you want to get up and do something also. Hmm? So uh, this, is, this is the idea of Krishna. It comes to this. The absolute is still in relation to matter. It's not moving, that is to say, along with the false movements of matter. Matter is always in flux. And we're the constant observing factor of the ever-changing material phenomena. We undergo changes, transformations of birth and, and growth and maturation, giving off byproducts and dwindling and dying, only because we've identified with things that do that. Right? I mean, the flux of matter. We're actually observing the flux, is the idea. We appear to disappear, but as long as we're attached to this plane, then we'll stay in it, that's for sure. And matter will form around us in another way. Then hmm? it will collapse. It's like it's, it's a kind of a karmic thing, how it forms, and how it collapses and reforms and so forth. Hmm? To know yourself, to know that you exist. Hmm. You can't ever die to know that. Oh, that's a big thing. But, hmm. and the Gita wants to take us to something more. Hmm. The life of the self. In other words, spiritual life is not merely the death, if you will, of this illusory difference that gets in the way of unity. Hmm. The demands of the mind and sense. It's not just putting a death to that. Why call it spiritual life? if it can only be described and explained in negative terms, putting an end to the problem. Let me explain it to you this way. If you have, let's say you have negative eight. Let's say you're in debt. Anybody in debt? Anybody not in debt? Okay. So, that's me. So, (laughs) so, so if you... If you're in negative numbers, and then you come to zero, that's a plus, isn't it? It's an abstract plus, but if you're in negative numbers, then you come to zero. So some schools teach like this, and wisely so. If, you, if you've taken, you owe. There are karmic implications. If you can get that debt absolved, an easy way would be to have it forgiven. This is the bhakti tradition. But you could probably kind of resolve it in, to an extent in, in other ways, by effort, by grace. If you could meet a bigger capitalist, I mean, a, a big person with greater capital, it would be easier to resolve your own debt. Hmm? This is bhakti. Hmm? Krishna's God. <laughs> it's one thing to try to own and control things. It's another thing to be the friend of the one who owns and controls everything. Hmm? All the problems are solved. So anyway, if we come to zero... That is a positive. But then the question may arise, are there any positive numbers? Is there anything out there? I've left the world of matter and the appearance of value. Hmm? It was false. I let go of that. Hmm? Is there anything real? Anartanivritti. I may give up false values. Are there any positive values? 
Is the self just merely the negation of false values and the relief that comes from that? Is that bliss? Bliss really has a positive connotation, not merely a, a relief. Hmm? There is bliss in being and really being, but there's more bliss in being in a particular way. Hmm? Being a lover. Hmm? In being a lover. And for there to be to be a lover, they have to be two. Yes, the two become one, but not in the way that the two are cancelled out. You and I become, as I said, we. It's a dynamic unity. So in the bhakti tradition, hmm, we have this idea of becoming one in purpose with with the Godhead. Hmm? If I say, Kamalakshanai are one, it doesn't mean I'm him and he's me. It means we have the same purpose. We're on the same page, in the same paragraph, in the same sentence. Hmm? He deposits Krishna speaking, after all, a loving doctrine. Hmm? Mystics have experienced in the trance of samadhi the idea of Krishna. Hmm? They've, they've experienced, in other words, that the self is different from matter. The self has is in a problematic situation in relation, in relation to matter because of its smallness. Hmm? Give you another example. There's the sun and there are rays of the sun. Sun is always above the clouds. Some rays, however, are below the clouds. There's some light, but, you know, not much. Hmm? We're like rays of light, rays of the sun that are beneath the clouds. There's sun above the clouds. If the ray could... It, it, and, and what's the best way to remove the clouds? Let the sun remove the clouds. What are we going to do? Start a big fire? We might burn ourselves up. There's effort in bhakti. Hmm? The effort is to get grace. That's the effort in bhakti. Hmm? There are other spiritual disciplines based on effort. Hmm? But bhakti is a yoga that's based on grace. We make an effort to get the grace. You can start a big fire to evaporate the clouds, but the sun does it of its own accord, of its own time. If you wait and you position yourself with faith and the sense that the more in me is not just that I'm different from matter, but that I have something to contribute. Hmm? What does God need? What can you contribute to God? Well, God, Krishna, if Krishna is the idea of God, Krishna needs only one thing. What is that? He needs a heart. Why? Because he's given his heart to those who love him. Hmm? He gives himself there. So we can give him ours. Hmm? And mystics who have done this, this comes to a very nice uh, kind of conclusion of this verse, in a sense. It says a lot here. As I said, Krishna said, those who explain the secret knowledge, we're going in that direction now. Not just the difference between matter and self, but the nature of being and loving. Those who explain this, who understood this and therefore can explain that, he said, they come, they come to me completely, for sure, I cannot leave them behind. I, I, I must have them. The idea that bhakti takes precedent over Bhagwan. You see, in religious traditions, it's generally taught that God, whatever word you want to use, is the most worshipable, venerable object. But in, in Gita, we can see that Krishna's teaching 
the most worshipable object, that there is a worshipable object of God. <laughs> Who does God worship? People ask, if, if God's the source of everything, who's the source of God? And it's a silly kind of a question, right? It's kind of one of those gotcha ideas, you know. If God's the source of everything, yeah. who's the source of God? We have the answer. If Krishna's the source of everything, who's the source of, who's the source of Krishna? Raisi. Radha. Who's the source of Radha? Krishna. Hmm? It's like the seed in the tree. Which came first? The seed or the tree? Hmm? In other words, Radha personifies the, the, the purest love, and she's depicted in the literatures in this way. Absolutely selfless. Hmm? But she is the, the, the personification of love and shows the way and is the deity at the same time. Krishna means the absolute conquered by love. He's medium size. <laughs> it means there's finite and there's infinite. Both are big. The infinite, the finite. One time, one of my godbrothers said to my Guru Maharaj, Oh, I'm the most fallen. He said, You're not the most anything. <laughs> that you should learn. Hmm? So we can, we can say, the God it is the biggest of the big, the smallest of the small, and Krishna's appearing medium size. Hmm? The other paths for ascending to the Godhead and getting eternity, hmm? getting mystic power, getting omniscience. Hmm? Bhakti is a different path. It says, you please come here. I can't go there. I don't have the fortitude. It's a kind of a crying, a kind of a singing. This is the song of God. He's singing to us. Hmm? He said, people come to me, they want eternity, they want things, I give them things. They want to live forever, I give them live forever. Hmm? Who's interested in me? Oh, there's some people, they sing my name. They're interested in me. What am I about? Do I have a life? I give life. I give things if you want them, which pretty much puts out your life if you want it. Do you want to live forever? Blessing, no problem. But who's interested in me? Those people. I'm interested in them. I've given my heart to them. We should give our heart then to those people. Hmm? We give our heart to Krishna, in a sense, because his heart is trying to give to them hmm, himself. They get him, actually, I should say. They, it means bhakti conquers Bhagwan, and Bhagwan becomes like a puppet in the hands of the devotee, Krishna. He's saying, does Radha love me? He asks his friend Subal, tell me, tell me, does she love me or not? She loves me, she loves me not. Yes, Radhe, she does, Radhe. Radhe jai jai madhava daite gokula charani mandala mohite Radhe. Radhe jayo jayo madhava daite Jayo Radhe Jayo Radhe 
जय राधे जय राधे question you don't have to have a question I thank you for your time what is the time oh appreciate the opportunity to uh, to speak with you and um, I'm gonna be here for a few days a few other places so if we meet up again uh, that'll be good for me Everything I've said tonight is you're fifty percent responsible for that. <laughs> so it's coming from your inquiring spirit that brought you here in the first place, and uh, I hope that some uh, perhaps questions you may have had were answered without having to to voice them. And some things that were said tonight have, I've never said before or thought about before. So again, that's you're much a, I'm much indebted to to you. We are all students uh, forever, and um, that should make the idea of the guru, which can be a little foreboding, to take the teeth out of it, so to speak. If we teach how to serve, then we'll be afraid of such a person. Who should exemplify serving and giving to the extreme himself or herself? So please, all of you, I bless you. Please try to become gurus and teach your children well. <laughs> Hare Krishna. <laughs> Hare Hare Bo.